I'm Michael Isikoff, Chief Investigative Correspondent for Yahoo News. And I'm Dan Clydman, Editor-in-Chief of Yahoo News. And a quick reminder that you can follow us at Pod. And by the way, if you've got any questions, thoughts, ideas you want to share, tweet right at us. Now let's get on with the show. In a season marked by turmoil within the Justice Department and surprises that never seem to stop, the ruling Wednesday from the U.S. Court of Appeals may have been the most consequential of all. Authored by a recent appointee of President Trump, it directed a federal judge to drop any further inquiry into the case of former National Security Advisor Michael Flynn and accept the Justice Department decision to let him off scot-free despite the fact that he had previously pled guilty to lying to the FBI and twice affirmed that plea under oath in federal court. It was an astonishing development that seemed certain to stoke the continued controversy surrounding Robert Mueller's Russia investigation, a probe that continues to hang over Donald Trump's presidency and provokes him into fits of outrage on Twitter, even though it has been over for more than a year. We'll discuss with Matt Miller, the former chief of public affairs at Maine Justice, and we'll talk to the author of a new book on Vladimir Putin, which reveals fascinating new details about his career as a KGB agent on this episode of Skullduggery. Because people have got to know whether or not their president is a crook. Well, I'm not a crook. I told the American people I did not trade arms for hostages. My heart and my best intentions still tell me that's true, but the facts and the evidence tell me it is not. I did not have sexual relations with that woman. There will be no lies. We will honor the American people with the truth and nothing else. I'm Michael Isikoff, Chief Investigative Correspondent for Yahoo News. And I'm Dan Clydman, Editor-in-Chief of Yahoo News. So, you know, we have spent a lot of time, we and others, over the last couple of years talking about Mitch McConnell's obsession with getting federal judges on the bench that are favorable to his and the Republican Party's view of the law. And here we see how it really matters. You have a two-to-one split decision from the Court of Appeals in the District of Columbia with a one of the more controversial Trump appointees, Naomi Rao, writing the opinion, just sort of basically blindly accepting the Justice Department's decision, highly unusual decision to drop the case against Michael Flynn, and exactly what McConnell and the president wanted, get their judges on the bench in key positions like the U.S. Court of Appeals, and you get favorable rulings that help you out on big political cases. Yeah, there's a lot of discussion in the punditocracy about the long-term effect of Trumpism. And I think for the most part, people are focusing on you know, the sort of destruction of norms that Trump is responsible for and the just kind of smash mouth politics. But I think the real impact may be the courts, as you point out, because Trump has been able to get hundreds of appellate court judges confirmed. I I don't have the numbers off the top of my head, but I think 
in the amount of time that he's had in office, it far exceeds what previous presidents have been able to do. And, um, you know, in some cases, he's remaking appeals courts in his uh, in his image. Now, that could revert back over time. Uh, these but, are lifetime um, appointments. So that's right. uh, Judge Rayo that's right. and a lot of these other uh, hardline conservatives that have been put on the bench um, are going to be there for a long time. Yeah. yeah. Uh, now, uh, one little kind of small counterpoint to that is the Supreme Court. And I mean, the jury is still out on how they're going to rule uh, going forward. But there have been recent cases in which, particularly in the um, LGBT case, LGBT right, right. Uh, gay Gorsuch rights, civil writing rights the case, opinion. Where, yeah. where Gorsuch was, you know, wrote the majority opinion that went against the Trump administration. And we, as we record this podcast, uh, we are waiting for a potentially very important abortion case. And, you know, it it's, remains to be seen where Chief Justice Roberts is going to vote in that case, but he is likely to be the swing vote. Now, Justice Roberts was not appointed by Trump, but it just you know tells you that uh, you can't always be sure how Supreme Court justices are, are going to you know, evolve over time. So, so there is that. Yeah, I, I'm waiting to see how Kavanaugh uh, splits the difference on the on this one. You know, he has this long track record of you know dancing on the head of a pin, making fine distinctions, basically ruling the way uh, his conservative sponsors would like him to rule, but with caveats and, you know, sort of minor adjustments in order to sort of maintain his image of independence, we will see. But look, there is a a lot of momentous events going on right now. The spike in COVID cases in those southwestern states, Florida, Texas, Arizona, thousands, they, they are hitting the figures that were unprecedented for them. I mean, records for them. And um, it is increasingly clear that, you know, this pandemic is far from over. And the impact of that on the economy and our politics is going to be even more long lasting than I thought it was going to be a few weeks ago. We just recorded the third highest total of new coronavirus cases. Hospitalizations are are rising in states, which is a very grim sign. I saw that, that hospitals in Houston are running out of ICU beds. I mean, this was the catastrophe that everyone was worried about in the beginning, that the healthcare system would be overloaded. And that appears maybe to start to be happening in some parts of the, of the country. And in terms of the political implications of this, where we're clearly seeing it in the polls, New New York Times uh, poll that has Biden ahead of Trump by 14 points. CNN had a similar poll a couple of weeks back, which was considered an outlier. I saw a poll that has Biden ahead of Trump in Wisconsin by seven and a half points. So, you know, it's really, really a problem because it's not magically going away the way Trump had predicted. And now you're seeing, you know, the EU, for example, debating whether they should actually close the borders to American citizens because of the fear that they will spread 
the disease and reignite it in Europe. So this is all very, very worrisome. Yeah, to uh, to say the least. But look, this is a show where we're going to be talking a lot about Russia and the Mueller investigation. Um, we've got this great author, Catherine Belton, coming up. But I, I just was wondering, is there anything you'd like to ask me before we get to our guests? Uh, God, um, I'm stumped. What, what, <laughs> what, 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 you want me to ask you something? Oh, wait a second. If you're trying to get me to ask you a question, it must be. Yeah. Because you have a very important announcement to make. And I think <laughs> I think that might be that the paperback edition of Russian Roulette, the New York Times bestselling account of Num- the, number one New number York one Times bestseller of, right. of the uh, of the Russia hoax, I, I mean, <laughs> I mean, Russian collusion yeah. uh, has just come out. You yeah. and your uh, co-author David Korn wrote a spectacular book. It's still the best book out there on this on this subject, and an amazing read as well. So. Uh, yeah, the paperback is new and expanded. And what do you, uh, do you what do you what do you have? You got anything? Yeah, yeah, new? yeah. Well, look, we have we've got a, a aside from we went into the body of the book to update it with all the uh, developments uh, from the Mueller probe, the Inspector General report, lots of new material. But also we have a new epilogue on that impeachment battle. Remember impeachment? Um, has anybody uh, does anybody recall that we actually impeached a president back? in um, late last year and then had a trial early this year in the Senate. I think we have um, a, a kind of a delicious new epilogue on that in which we reconstruct Donald Trump's morning, the morning in the couple of hours before his fateful phone call with Zelensky, the president of Ukraine, where he asked him for a favor to investigate the Bidens and 2016 interference by the Ukrainians. And uh, guess what Trump was doing that morning in the hours before? He was watching Fox, (laughs) watching Fox and friends and tweeting left and right about what he was hearing on Fox and friends about the underwhelming performance by Robert Mueller that day impeachment. It's over. He writes the, uh, in one of his tweets, but it's also actually Fox and friends. This is kind of interesting. Fox and friends goes off the air at 9. AM at nine Oh three the White House switchboard patches through the call to Zelensky. One other data point that's worth mentioning that I think tells you a lot about what took place during that phone call is also that morning, there was a new Quinnipiac poll that showed that Trump was losing to Biden by eight points in Ohio. No Republican has ever won the White House without carrying the state of Ohio. So that was a real cloud on Trump's horizon that morning. So you put it together with his relishing his victory, in air quotes, over Robert Mueller, and now dedicated to getting what Tom Bossert, his former Homeland Security advisor, called his pound of flesh. He wants revenge on Mueller and his team at this point. And the new polling data showing he's losing to Biden in you know one of the most crucial battleground states of all. It, tell, it may tell you all you need to know about what took place on that phone call that led to his impeachment. It is, a, I think, an important insight. And because 
what Trump seemed to understand all the way back then was that Joe Biden represented the biggest threat to his reelection because Joe Biden was the kind of candidate who would be able to appeal to and siphon off Donald Trump's most important, you know, constituencies, that is to say, white people, clearly white college educated voters, but also white non-college educated women voters, for example. And if you look at the polls now, that is where he is being most badly hurt, also older voters. And so it makes you understand why it would have been so important for him to try to kill Biden politically. Well, it's it's all uh, it's a paperback. It's out now. Russian roulette, uh, new revised, expanded. Um, so uh, skullduggery listeners, um, get your copy. You can send it to us and uh, I'll inscribe it. But the most important thing is to buy the book if you haven't already read it. Let's get on with the show. We got a lot to talk about. We now have with us Matt Miller, former Chief of Public Affairs at the Justice Department. Uh, Matt, welcome back to Skullduggery. Thanks, as always, for having me. So were you as surprised as I was by the Court of Appeals ruling ordering Judge Sullivan to accept the Justice Department's decision to drop the case against Michael Flynn? Yeah, I I was just based on the oral argument when the panel heard the case. It looked like, look, look, Naomi Rao, I'm not surprised at all by her opinion. She's the Trump appointed judge who wrote the opinion today. But Judge Henderson, who who was the swing vote, I I did think based on what she'd said at oral argument that she was at least going to let Judge Sullivan have a hearing and rule before taking it out of his hands. And that's not what she decided to do today. Explain, you know, as a former Justice Department official, why the Justice Department, at the end of the day, which makes prosecution decisions, shouldn't have the authority to make this decision. No, I think they should in almost every circumstance. And that's that's what uh, the counsel uh, or I should say, you know, the former judge who was appointed by Judge Sullivan to come in and, and represent kind of the case for why Flynn should be sentenced. Um What he says, look, the Department of Justice should always make that call. It's the executive branch's job, except in very rare circumstances where the Justice Department is doing something so transparently corrupt. And then in that case, the judge is is implicating himself in the in the department's corruption by going along with it. And and I think the important thing is that no one's arguing that that DOJ shouldn't be able to decide on its own when to bring a case. But if if the department has already made that decision already brought the case, already gotten a plea uh, agreement that the defendant signed off on, stood up in court and said he accepted, and we're moving to the part of the case that is in the judiciary's hands, which is sentencing, that at that point, if DOJ comes back and, and does a complete 180, if it's for a legitimate reason, fine. If it's for an illegitimate reason, the court has some role in probing that and finding and, and determining whether to accept the, the Justice Department's new recommendation or not. Yeah. I mean, there are so many sort of unique aspects to this case. I think uh, people at the FBI have said there was no playbook for how to deal with a situation where an incoming national security advisor is having conversations with the Russian ambassador, urging him basically to forget about what the 
president at the time has done, do not respond suggesting, you know, wait a few weeks, we'll be in power, we will uh, have a different course of action. And then, of course, you get the vice president of the United States lying on national television saying such a conversation never took place. It does strike me as there was no playbook for what you do in a situation like this. Yeah, that's right. And the argument DOJ makes now is basically that the FBI was too aggressive. And that is the the fundamental problem, I think, with the argument Barr is trying to make is that it's an argument that only applies to one person, to Mike Flynn. They make that, you know, they make this really, uh, I think, ridiculous argument in the, in the in the filing they made to dismiss the case that because at one point the FBI thought that the investigation should be closed, when they then got new evidence and decided to go interview him, the predicate was gone. They had no justification for interviewing him. And so the lies that he told were not material. It is an argument that would not that I guarantee you the Justice Department is going to fight when other defendants raise it in every other case around the country from here on out. It's an argument that has applied in one case and one case only in that anyone can find. And that's Mike Flynn's. And I guarantee you DOJ will never support that sort of argument in future cases. And that's what's what makes it so obviously political what they do. Well, well, yeah, and we'll we'll get into this when we talk about the Roger Stone sentencing as well because it's the same idea, the kind of a double standard which suggests political motivation. But just as a matter of principle because I think this is what Judge Ray said in, in her decision that the executive branch, every branch actually has to have an opportunity to I think her word was self-correct if they make a judgment that you know that, that something was not done the right way. And you don't dispute that, do you? You're just saying that in this case, there is a kind of a prima facie case of corruption. And so you have to make an exception. Absolutely. Of course, the executive branch should be able to self-correct. And in fact, the Justice Department has self-corrected in front of this judge, Judge Sullivan. He, I think quite famously is the judge who heard the corruption case for Ted Stevens. And when the department found evidence of prosecutorial misconduct, they came to him, moved to dismiss the case after the guilty verdict had been rendered at trial. And the judge did dismiss the case. And I think one point, you know, it's interesting that the Justice Department actually in this very strained motion to dismiss the case actually never claimed prosecutorial misconduct. They argue all of these reasons why it ought to be discussed, but but they never claimed the thing that would actually, you know, maybe get you over the line. That's to claim prosecutorial misconduct. And I think it's because they actually couldn't back that up. Where does this go from here? Is this case, is this dead now? Or I know there's at least the possibility that Judge Sullivan or that the full Court of Appeals could review this. Do you think that's likely if it did, if it does happen? How do you think that plays out? So it is a great question. There, there are two ways in which the full Court of Appeals could hear it. One, any judge on that court uh, could ask for the, the court to take it up and they could they, the full, the full uh, court could decide to do that. And the second is Judge Sullivan could ask for the full uh, circuit court to take it up. I don't know. I, I'm, I'm really not sure. I mean, Judge Sullivan may be annoyed by this. Um, he may just decide to let it go and move on. I mean, this thing has been dragging on a long time. I think it's hard to say. I do think if the full circuit does review it, it, it's likely to be reversed. I mean, these were the two justices who have been the most Trump-friendly on the D.C. circuit. If you look at some of the other cases that have come to that circuit, you know, whether to release his tax returns and issues involving congressional subpoenas, these judges are, are, are I think, it, it's inarguable they're the most 
pro-Trump judges on that circuit. I, I don't think the rest of the panel, the rest of the circuit yeah. would agree. I should point out that Judge Gleason, who was appointed by Sullivan as the amicus to file that amicus brief, which really was a, a powerful brief a recitation of the uh, of the facts in the Flynn case, has already asked the court, the full court, whether he should continue to file the motion he was planning to file in response to what the Justice Department's position was, given the Court of Appeals ruling. So he's asked for guidance. It's been pointed out that the ruling doesn't take effect for 21 days. So there is a period before Flynn is entirely uh, released from any uh, federal prosecution. So we'll see. But I was going to ask you to put this in the context of uh, everything else that's been going on at the Bar Justice Department over the last few weeks. We had this hearing today before House Judiciary with a former Mueller prosecutor testifying to the irregularities in the Roger Stone sentencing procedure. Uh, We had the firing of Jeffrey Berman, the uh, U.S. attorney in the Southern District over the weekend. This does seem to be a remarkable period of turmoil at the Justice Department. Yeah, I think the statement from Aaron Zelensky to the House today was the most significant evidence of corruption at the Justice Department since Watergate. I, I don't think there's anything that you can find that holds a candle to the corruption that he that he revealed in his statement. And I think we don't know, with respect to the SDNY file, SDNY issue, we don't yet know why Barr tried to force, or well, ultimately did force, the U.S. attorney out. But we know that his explanation, his public explanation about it, his explanations haven't been true. You know, first saying that, you know, the U.S. attorney had agreed to resign. That wasn't true. Uh, and then I, I think the explanation they still make isn't isn't true, which is they were just trying to create a spot for Jay Clayton because he's such a good guy, the chair of the SEC, and he wanted to go home to New York. They were trying to create a spot for him. If you're trying to create a spot for him, you don't need to move Jeff Berman out right away or in two weeks. You can nominate him and Jeff Berman can stay in his job until until Clayton gets there. They, they were trying to fill it with an acting U.S. attorney who would be more compliant in the same way they did in D.C. They got someone more compliant who then did what Barr wanted in the Stone and Flynn cases. I, I think you know, Barr has completely politicized the Justice Department. And I think the troubling thing is there appear to be very few guardrails and very few consequences for him. Hold on. I want to push back on the on the not since Watergate analogy, because we hear a lot of that. It came up at the hearing today. And look, there's no question, you know, there's a lot of troubling developments at the Justice Department and reason to be deeply suspicious. But at the end of the day, the dust up over the stone sentencing was a process uh, controversy. It, it, it didn't affect the bottom line at all. Stone was convicted. He's going to prison. The judge ruled. She ruled. The sentence she gave was actually in line with what the Bar Justice Department asked for, not what the Mueller prosecutors asked for. So, yes, I get that it was highly irregular and even improper for political uh, motives to influence the sentencing recommendation. But it was only a sentencing recommendation, and it did not affect the actual outcome of Roger Stone going to prison for charges for which he was convicted in federal court. But Mike, the process at the Department of Justice is the most important thing. 
the reasons for why you make the decisions you do are the most important thing. And if the, the Justice Department is making decisions not based on the facts, not based on the law, not based on an impartial uh, analysis of, of what the right outcome ought to be, but doing it for political reasons and always coming down on the side of the president's interests, that is the worst thing that can happen at the Justice Department. And we see it happening over and over again. I, I, you see it in the Stone case. You see it in the Flynn case. I mean, the antitrust division, for Christ's sake, the, the testimony today from an antitrust official that Barr is making these crazy decisions to politicize the antitrust division. Most <laughs> attorneys general barely pay attention to antitrust. To investigate the marijuana industry. <laughs> and, and, to, and to investigate <laughs> automobile, automobile manufacturers for signing uh, an emissions agreement with California that the administration didn't like on policy reasons. The idea that you would investigate, use law enforcement powers to, because you disagree with policy decisions is just completely antithetical to the way the department ought to work. So I, I disagree that it's just a kind of a process foul. Motive matters more than anything when you look at, at why the department does the things it does. But, I mean, in the case of the Stone sentencing and Aaron Zelensky's testimony, what was so convincing to you about he did not have firsthand knowledge of this, right? I mean, he, he didn't talk to any of the political decision makers about it. It was, it was, it was hearsay testimony. It, it was hearsay <laughs> testimony. What was so powerful about, it, about his testimony, given that fact? So two things. One, just his analysis of how correct their original sentencing recommendation was, which isn't to say that Roger Stone, that the judge was wrong to give him a lower sentence than they recommended. It's that the, the department is required under department policy put in place by Jeff Sessions, by the way, is required to recommend the most serious sentence under the sentencing guidelines and that there was no justifiable reason to do that. So if there's no justifiable reason to do it, what is the reason that they did that? And and what he says, his supervisor, J.P. Cooney, a line, a, a career prosecutor in the U.S. Attorney's Office, told him it was for political reasons. Now, you're right. He got that from J.P. Cooney. He didn't talk to the U.S. Attorney himself because he testified today when he asked for a meeting with the U.S. Attorney, he was denied the opportunity to meet with Tim Shea, the U.S. Attorney. So you're right. It's hearsay. But if I'm the House Judiciary Committee, I want to talk to J.P. Cooney next. Well, I, I was just going to say a serious hearing and a serious investigation would have done that instead of doing this today in a setting that, you know, basically became another political circus uh, with, you know, each side throwing spitballs at the other. Don't both sides me on this, Mike. <laughs> All right. <laughs> well, certainly uh, the Republicans uh, sort of take the cake on the uh, spitball front, but, uh, you know, not entirely, not entirely. The front of your Democratic clowns up there, too. But look, I mean, they they could have subpoenaed Cooney. They could have sought his uh, testimony. It would have been a lot more powerful because Cooney could presumably have said, this is what Tim Shea, the appointed U.S. attorney, told me, right? I mean, well, investigations unfold in stages. We don't know what the next stage is. Maybe that's what they're planning to do now. By, by the way, on the, the whole Tim Shea thing, I mean, I think one of the kind of dimensions of this uh, episode that you know, maybe hasn't gotten enough attention, is the fact that Barr engineered to push out the Senate-confirmed U.S. attorney, Jesse Liu, so that he could then install his longtime aide, Tim Shea. Now, I don't know that those that that and then what happened with the sentencing are connected, but it sure seems fishy. <laughs> yeah. It does seem a little fishy to me. It's not, and it's it, not too hard to connect those dots. Yeah. I have to say. I mean, and yeah. then and then you add to the fact that he has, all, you know, a, a like, you know, Friday night 
effort to fire the U.S. attorney in the Southern District. Uh, you know, there does seem to be a pattern of of behavior here that that's uh, pretty questionable. So I don't know. I just think that hasn't gotten quite as much attention as it probably should. The whole Jesse Liu thing, and I'm not sure. Like, what was the problem with Jesse Liu? I mean, Trump didn't like her, but I think she was, uh, you know, cons- a pretty respected U.S. attorney. And Senate and Senate confirmed. Senate confirmed, uh, dragging her feet on prosecuting Andrew McCabe. Remember, there had been a attempt to prosecute him that seems to have fallen apart in the grand jury, and the U.S. Attorney's Office had not refiled those charges or tried to go back and file those charges. Of course, once she was gone, they still decided not not to bring charges. So I think that was one thing. But look, you're right. I think they wanted to push her out because she wasn't compliant enough. And that's what made what was happening in the SDNY so troubling, because there was a history in pushing the U.S. attorney in Washington, D.C. out and replacing her with an acting official who was loyal to Barr in the same way that the, the person who was going to be the acting official at SDNY is the U.S. attorney in New Jersey, a guy by the name of Craig Carbonito, Carbonito who is close to Chris Christie, is seen as a, a, a Christie acolyte. Christie got him the job. I think he represented Chris Christie in the uh, Bridgegate investigation. He did, and I'm told that he is one of the, the U.S. attorneys who, when a U.S. attorney candidate, got a meeting with the, the president before he got the job, which is extremely rare, and, and Christie was in on that meeting. So you can see why Barr might want someone uh, other than Jeff Berman to be in that office. Okay, well, uh, you know, now that you've goaded me to both sides, you, I will point out that the former U.S. attorney in that office in the Justice Department you served with under uh, Obama brought the, the Bridgegate case, which was only recently overturned by the Supreme Court nine to nothing. Not exactly a stellar record if one's looking for prosecutorial abuses. You know, it seems to me that uh, that might rank up there given the, uh, the Supreme Court decision. There's a difference between prosecutorial abuse, prosecutorial misconduct, and a, di- a different interpretation of the law. I think the Supreme Court's ruling in Bridgegate was unfortunately consistent with a string of Supreme Court rulings that are basically making it pretty difficult to prosecute public corruption. I, I agree with that 100 percent. And and that's really alarming because, uh, you know, we've had many abuses that have been prosecuted by the Justice Department uh, from, you know, the McConnell case, uh, the former Republican governor of, of Virginia who was uh, uh, convicted of corruption. And that was overturned by the Supreme Court as well. So, yes, you're entirely right on that. I did want to point out that Barr now has agreed to testify before judiciary on, I think it's July 28th. So we got to wait another month for that. And on top of everything else, we have the Bolton book in which Bolton writes that he went to Barr about his concerns with the president's efforts to interfere in ongoing criminal cases, most notably the one involving the Turkish-owned bank that was being investigated by Jeffrey Berman's office. And, uh, you know, one of the lines of inquiry one hopes that judiciary gets into when Barr testifies under oath is... What did Bolton say to you, and how did you respond? Is it true, as Bolton writes in his book, that you expressed concern about what the president was doing? I would certainly ask him that question. And it's especially relevant because, you know, that was an SDNY case, and that indictment was held up for months and months and months. People were waiting for for that bank to get indicted. And the indictment only came, remember, this is this very odd timing when 
we had this dust up with Turkey where they you know, basically invaded northern Syria. And it was in the days after that that finally this indictment was returned. And it looked very much like there had been a hold on the indictment. And then when we had a little, you know, when we needed to look tough with Syria be, or with, with Turkey because the president had first given them the green light, all of a sudden the hold got lifted and the indictment was returned. It was very odd timing. And I would certainly delve into that. As someone who worked in the Justice Department for, for a long time and has obviously been around political, politically sensitive cases, just kind of wonder, well, two, two questions. Just what the impact you think that this series of controversies involving Barr and the questions about the politicization of the Justice Department has on the people who work in the department, how corrosive is it? What impact does it have on morale? What do you think the long-term effect is? And the second part of the question is just how unusual is it for two career Justice Department lawyers who are still working there to come out publicly and testify against their own attorney general? Yeah, I'll maybe that one first. I can't think of a precedent in recent memory, last 10, 15 years, when career officials have come and testified. You've seen former officials testify in the middle of scandal. You know, Jim Comey, who was the former deputy attorney general, came and testified uh, at one point. The U.S. attorneys who were fired in in the the U.S. attorney scandal in the Bush administration testified. But they were all former officials and they weren't career people. This is extremely unusual. And, And I think it goes to the sort of corrosive nature of what Barr has done and the, and the corrosive effects it's having down inside the department at the line attorney level where they're being asked to do things that they don't feel are, are appropriate. You know, um, Zelensky talked about the fact that, you know, he, he, he couldn't sign the, uh, a revised memo because it just it, it wasn't appropriate under the, the department's practices. Uh, Elias is talking about the fact that they they were Elias is the John Elias is the antitrust official is talking testified to the fact that you know they were asked to open investigations and send subpoenas when there was no reason under the department's guidelines to do it. They were doing it because Barr has a, a, a personal animus against marijuana companies. I, I think the long term effects though are not so much inside the department, but really about this post-Watergate norm that the department should be independent from the White House and that it should make its decision free from politics. I think the effect of the Trump presidency and what's happened at the Justice Department is that the commitment to that norm has collapsed on the Republican side. I think the worst thing about what's happened is not just that Barr has done what he's done, but that there is no price that he's paying for it. You know, look at Alberto Gonzalez. His actions in the U.S. attorney scandal were nothing compared to what what, what his own, no, nothing compared compared to what Barr has what there's firm evidence that Barr has done. And he had to resign as AG. Barr's not going to have to. And I think what that means is, look, if Joe Biden wins, the norm will snap back because Democrats number one are committed to independence and the rule of law in the way that Republicans aren't. Number two, we have an incentive in that we care about scandal and we care about what the New York Times says if we're act- says about us or what you all say about us. And so there's a political incentive not to do it. But I think the next Republican president, whoever it is, we're going to see a Justice Department fairly similar to this one, because I think the commitment to that norm has just collapsed on the Republican side of the aisle. Yeah, although assuming there's a Biden presidency, I will not be surprised to hear the Republicans suddenly finding all sorts of improper political motivations going on. Well, and especially especially if the attorney general in a Biden administration is Adam Schiff, who a lot of people, (laughs) a lot 
lot of people have uh, have been floating his name, and he's got a lot of supporters uh, for that uh, position. I, I have to say, on the the one the one detail on the the antitrust piece of this story, I think it, it was said that at one point. A third of all cases being investigated by the antitrust division were pot cases, were can- the cannabis industry. I mean, you know, that is... Mergers <laughs> of these little tiny marijuana companies. It's just... It all goes. I have said this uh, uh, multiple times on this podcast. It all goes back to the formative period for uh, Bill Barr on the campus of Columbia University in 1968, fighting the culture wars. It's true. It says it it goes back to who he is and what he believes, but it's also something about the way he operates. You know, uh, having seen an attorney general up close and personal, DOJ does things every day that the attorney general doesn't really agree with. He may not have, you know, he may not think they're unethical things the department is doing, but it's like, well, I would have done that differently. And this isn't necessarily the way I would have done this. And wow, I can't believe the criminal division did it that way. But the AG can't reach down into everything, into every division inside the department and try to run everything that happens. You have to let some of the things, the department carry on its own work. I, I think you're really onto something there with Barr. And it does speak to a kind of, um, I don't know if it's hubris or it, he's got this kind of supreme self-confidence and this kind of idea that, like, you know, these nincompoops below me don't know how to do their job. And so the best example of this is he's, like, flying around the world working on the Durham investigation. Yeah, I, mean, I, did, I was did, just going to say that, you know, that is the ticking time bomb here. You know, as big as the controversy, these controversies have been, Barr is really committed to getting the results of the Durham investigation out there. He's got to do it basically before the summer ends. I mean, he knows enough that he can't drop a politically charged indictments if that's what Durham is going to do during election season. He can't do that. So he said over the weekend in that interview he gave with uh, Maria Bartoloma that he's hopeful that there will be some developments before the end of the summer. So that's the next couple of months. And I think, you know, that's that's the real one to watch. Who, who's he who's he going to indict? I mean, who's been before the grand jury? So it's a great question. I I, I don't think he's going to indict any of this, the serious players. Um, you hear. I'll just say you hear talk that there are a lot of people who Durham has wanted to talk to who've told him to go pound sand and they haven't gotten a subpoena because that part of the investigation is not a criminal investigation and he doesn't have a grand jury. Now, there may be charges against the FBI analyst who wrote the, you know, what seems to be a, a, you know, a false statement in the, the, the Carter Page FISA application. Maybe that will happen. But in terms of the, the big players that they really want, I suspect what it will be at the end of the day is a report. And, and I'll just say, Mike, you ought to be right that he wouldn't do anything in the, the time immediately before the election. But he made this comment in an interview a month or so ago that, well, I don't know why that would matter. None of the people that we're talking about are on the ballot. So why would the the 60-day informal rule right before the election matter at all? He seemed yeah. to think that that didn't apply to this report. Now, it shouldn't. Yes and no. I mean, given that, uh, you know, Comey's letter during the last weeks is what was ultimately used as the basis for firing him as FBI director, it would seem to me that Barr, that would make Barr a bit cautious about doing something that would have clear political ramifications that would vindicate one candidate, the president of the United States, over others, over his opponent. I, we don't know. Uh, we don't 
don't know what the report is going to say. I, you know, I remain open to see what they've got, what they have turned up, uh, what they've t- what Durham has turned up. I always believe there's more to learn about how the investigation went out, but took place. But um, the, Octo- the October surprise, the October, I mean, the inevitable gonna, October know, why, surprise. Why stop yeah. with Durham? Why don't they just, you know, why doesn't he just in- indict Hunter Biden? <laughs> <laughs> Go for it. Uh, look, you would think they wouldn't do it because of all the blowback, but but to the point I was making. Yeah. about him reaching into things and, and Dan and Dan picked up on it. One of the, the lessons of the way Barr has operated the past few months is to me has been that you know arrogance can at times be its own brand of incompetence. I think the way he handled the SDNY matter was completely incompetent and it was incompetent because he had, he's blinded by his own arrogance that he can he knows best and he can just push over the objections of people and he can get things done and that leads him to make mistakes. Well, we shall um, have you back as uh, as as events uh, unfold. As certainly, uh, we'll all be watching. We've got the bar testimony at the end of July, and then possibly a report from Durham in August or early September. So um, uh, stick around. Uh, we'll have you back anytime. We are now joined by Catherine Belton, author of the new book, Putin's People, How the KGB Took Back Russia and Then Took on the West. Catherine, welcome to Skullduggery. Hello. Hi. Thanks so much for having me on. Well, Catherine, you're a veteran Moscow correspondent and investigative reporter. A lot of us have been waiting for this book for many years. And I have to say, it's well worth the wait. A lot of really eye-popping new material about uh, Vladimir Putin and his entourage and how he has ruled Russia all these years. But I want to start out with what I think is, you know, to me, was the biggest news to me in the book, and that was your account of Putin's days as a KGB agent in Dresden. Those of us who have reported on Putin over the years and written about him, the standard accounts is he was basically a nobody who was doing mundane activities, didn't really have that high a profile or wasn't involved in that many sensitive matters during his years in the 1980s as a KGB agent in Dresden, East Germany. In fact, you report that's not the real story. Tell us what you found. Yeah, I think they did an incredibly good job at covering their tracks. I mean, it seemed clear that they were out to do that from the get-go, because indeed, what they did when the Berlin Wall fell was destroy all the documents. They just burned everything. They shipped truckloads of documents back to Moscow. And it seemed, uh, according to at least two former associates, that they had good reason to, because not only was Putin and his sort of associates there, they were involved in technology smuggling, the imports of banned high technology uh, from the West into uh, the Soviet Union, but they were also kind of very deeply involved in what we now call active measures, this 
sort of efforts to sow disruption and chaos in the West. One former associate, an ex-Stasi colleague who later defected into the West, told a German magazine that sort of Putin had been trying to acquire an untraceable poison uh, from a professor, and he was trying to do so by planting pornographic material on this professor. We don't know whether the operation came off or not. And he also said that Putin was a handler for a notorious neo-Nazi who first went into the West and then returned to Dresden, where he helped stoke the rise of the far right. Let me stop you there, because just in what you just said, there are sort of two clues that perhaps shed light on uh, Putin's later conduct. First, uh, the planting of pornographic material that seems to be a early instance of the use of compromat um, by Putin, something that we'll come back to uh, that we saw later in his career, and the uh, reaching out to uh, a neo-Nazi kind of presages um, some of what we saw later in the funding of of uh, right-wing extremist uh, groups in Europe and political parties. Yeah, I think you're right. It was sort of a, a training ground for everything that was later to come, everything that we've seen. There was a hotel there. It was infamous for entrapping Western businessmen. It was called the Hotel Bellevue. They all had to stay there. All the rooms were kitted out with bugs and photographic equipment. Uh, one Stasi guy who used to work with Putin then said, yes, we use lots of female agents then. They were often more effective than us males. And then the other very disturbing thing which came up during my reporting was that there was another former associate who was actually a former member of the Red Army Faction or the Bader Meinhof group. And he had a very uh, compelling story to tell. I went to see him three times. Uh, we talked for hours. I was trying to check everything out. And uh, he told a story in which sort of during these days when he was operating with the Red Army faction, when they were sort of uh, bombing U.S. Army bases and there were other assassination attempts on prominent Western, West German industrial titans, he said that they were going to Dresden and they were receiving instructions in Dresden. They were going there precisely because it was a backwater. It was far away from the spying eyes of the West, which were all concentrating their focus on East Berlin. That's where everyone was looking, but no one really paid any attention to Dresden. It was so far away from everyone. Uh, they travel into East Berlin on the train, get into a Zill car to Dresden where they'd be meted by Stasi and KGB. And among these people, he said, was Putin. And very often he'd be taking the lead. He said they wouldn't give them orders, but they'd certainly make suggestions about possible targets and also uh, help them acquire weapons and cash. Um, once they were back in the West, he said that they'd present to them with a list and they'd make sure that they found an agent or some other way of getting them the materials they needed. Now, this, unfortunately, it's one source it was impossible to verify because all this guy, all these guys' colleagues are either in prison or dead. I did ask another Stasi colleague of Putin who was uh, sort of deeply involved with Putin then about these, this story. He basically just said, look, I don't know when it was top secret. We weren't involved. Uh, the Russians made sure not to tell us everything. And
then they also made sure to destroy absolutely everything. And another kind of big question mark is the fact that all the Stasi bosses in that particular area didn't wait around to be questioned after Germany's reunification and the fall of the wall. They all died. They either committed suicide, supposedly. Am I remembering this uh, correctly, Catherine, that the uh... The Stasi, was it the fixer-in-chief who you interviewed? And he said, he told you that it, none of this had been, had been proved. And it sounds like a somewhat of a veiled <laughs> warning to you. That wasn't okay. the fixer-in-chief. That was, that was actually another very close uh, Putin colleague from the KGB who is still yeah. close with him today. Yeah, he said, and yeah. He said, and you, and you, should, not try, you should not try to do so yourself. Yeah, he was pretty shocked about that. <laughs> you know, that, does, Isikoff... that doesn't seem to have deterred you. <laughs> no. Well, I think well, there is still a lot of questions. I'm still fascinated by the sort of the origin story here and how it connects to what Putin has done much later as president um, of, of Russia. One thing that I think Isakov did not mention was the interest in poison all the way back in the 80s, since there's a... Mike has done, we've done a lot of reporting and done shows on this podcast about Putin's, you know, efforts to assassinate people in London, opponents, uh, rivals, and that sort of thing. So I wonder if you drew that connection when you were doing the reporting. Yeah, I guess it's just something that the KGB has always dealt with. Uh, I think they see individual life as collateral damage. And if they're pursuing a great cause or indeed if somebody has betrayed them, then uh, I don't think they have any make any bones about sort of uh, getting rid and eliminating them. I think it's just something that we've seen uh, throughout Putin's career, unfortunately. Can you tell us, I'm fascinated by this former Red Army member who you tracked down and who says he met with Putin on multiple occasions and they discussed uh, various um, terrorist activities that the Red Army would be engaged in. And you, you know, detail some of those that came later, uh, including the uh, killings of the chairman of the Deutsche Bank in 1989 and uh, the chief of Siemens Technology in 1986. But what can you tell us about this Red Army member, how active he was in the Badr-Meinhof gang, whether he was ever charged with crimes, um, and uh, how you came to find him? That is a difficult question to answer without revealing too much details about his identity. Um, mm-hmm. I'd rather not because um, he's, you know, obviously it's quite sensitive information that he's sharing. Maybe one day uh, he'll come forward and, and go on the record, but um, I'm quite anxious for him to be honest. What do you think this reporting tells us about Putin himself? I think it tells us that, you know, he's just, you know, as as Bush correctly surmised when he first met him uh, in the early days of his presidency, that he's he's KGB through and through, that uh, he's always been steeped in active measures, that uh, he's obviously very cynical. And also it sort of, it tells us as well, it confirms some of my other reporting in the book. Like I spoke with a lot of other ex-KGB associates of Putin, some who were from Moscow 
rather than St. Petersburg and the Moscow KGB guys like to consider the, themselves a slightly higher class than the guys from Leningrad, St. Petersburg, which is Russia's second city. And they would sort of say slightly scathingly that those from Leningrad, St. Petersburg, they have a chip on their shoulder and they're much, much more ruthless uh, than us guys from Moscow, that the St. Petersburg guys will, will stop at nothing to acquire power. And unfortunately, that's what we've seen throughout Putin's rule. So, Catherine, what many have reported on as the kind of formative period for Putin as a KGB agent in Dresden was the very end, was when the, the Berlin Wall fell, when you had a sort of people power in East Germany, and at one point the KGB headquarters is surrounded by protesters. And um, he sees how fragile power can be. And I think also feels betrayed by his um, overlords in Moscow because they don't send the tanks in. And that's a lesson for him. Talk about that period and what impact you think it had on how he wielded power ultimately as he, as he rose through the ranks in Russian politics to eventually become the supreme leader there. Yeah, I think it was actually, I mean, the whole picture was not quite so clear cut because another thing that was sort of quite obvious when looking a bit closer at what he was up to in Dresden was that he uh, was believed to be part of a faction of uh, Soviet intelligence, the foreign intelligence arm that was preparing in case the communist regimes would collapse. It had been, they were sort of the elite of the KGB. They were traveling wildly. Uh, they could see that the Soviet planned economy was not going to be able to compete against the West. Uh, they knew they needed reforms. They knew that dissent was rising across the Eastern Bloc against the heavy hand of the state and the security services and sort of the lower living standards. And they knew that, that basically time was running out. And so what Putin and his allies in Dresden were also engaged in, some of the high-tech uh, smuggling operations were also used as a way to sort of siphon cash through front companies so that they could preserve their intelligence networks even after the Soviet fall, even after a collapse of the communist regime in East Germany. And I think what did happen was that they were preparing, they were hoping that behind the scenes they could retain control. Putin in Dresden was party secretary, a position that would have put him in touch with the Dresden uh, communist leader at the time, Hans Modrow. He'd been picked by the Soviets as the person they wanted to lead the country through perestroika-type reforms. Uh, that didn't quite come off, but uh, would have put also Putin in a quite sort of influential position. But what did happen, I think they were preparing, preparing, but the speed of the collapse took them by surprise. They weren't prepared for that. And then they had to sort of destroy all these documents. Putin was waiting still for, for Moscow to, to come and defend them as protesters were, were gathered outside the KGB villa. Um, yes, there was that great moment when he called uh, sort of the, the neighboring Soviet army base for troops to help defend them and got this answer back saying Moscow is silent, which seemed to kind of reverberate around his head forever that he couldn't believe that the, the empire was collapsing, even though they'd sort of seen the writing on the wall uh, for quite some time. I think the speed of events really took them by surprise. But I think 
think, you know, what we have to realise is about sort of Putin and most of his KGB friends was that they kind of held no candle for communism. Um, Indeed, many of them believed that it was sort of communism who which betrayed the empire, that communism had sort of failed them in the great imperial competition against the West. It was communism, the planned economy that was holding them back. So it's very natural when uh, Putin did return to the Soviet Union that he then sort of was sent to attach himself to uh, the country's democratic leaders. Indeed, he was told to do so by his former mentor. And there it's kind of also really kind of a case in point for sort of how the KGB essentially stayed in the background through the tumultuous era of, of the Yeltsin reforms and really much really did sort of remain a power behind the scenes. And this is really what the, the West has underestimated when Putin was in St. Petersburg. He was also funneling cash into into offshore networks through kind of uh, yeah. shady barter deals and so on. And, and mostly the West saw these schemes as just kind of just corruption that they were sort of funneling out cash to line their own pockets. But actually they weren't. They were funneling cash into companies run by KGB associates so they could keep the networks going. So what he learned as a as a KGB officer um, in terms of the, the smuggling, in terms of the, the networks and relationships that he built, he was able to use over time to kind of build the kind of klepto security state that he now has reigned over for two decades. Yeah. Yes. I mean, essentially, these were methods that were kind of prototypes for what we were all to see to see later. I mean, indeed, uh, sort of ahead of the Soviet fall, the KGB was again the foreign intelligence arm was was trying to kind of persuade the Communist Party to create an invisible economy to shift its assets into the West so that it could continue to survive uh, in conditions of a market economy. Obviously, the the communist regime collapsed and the KGB the foreign intelligence arm were the ones who retained uh, kind of hold of the keys and really the way they operated then through a network, they created networks of loyal custodians who were fronts for the regime and this is precisely how we see Putin operate today. He has sort of he's managed, he and his guys have managed to take over the country's strategic cash flows, uh, oligarchs uh, in Russia are all beholden to him to keep to maintain hold of their property. In essence, they act as trusted custodians for the Kremlin and they can be sort of sent to pursue strategic tasks for the Kremlin, whether it be at home or abroad. One of the continuing themes in Putin's career is a ruthlessness about achieving his aims. And um, you sort of go through some of the more controversial episodes in Putin's rise and his presidency and one that has always that's been hotly debated for years was the uh, 1999 apartment bombings um, which was publicly attributed these are a series of bombings of apartment buildings in Moscow that killed civilians apparent terrorist acts that was publicly blamed on uh, the Chechen rebels but there have been questions about that <laughs> those episodes and whether the FSB successor to the KGB may have been implicated in staging those bombings so Putin can crack down on uh, the Chechen rebels. Take us through what you found 
and what you concluded about those apartment bombings. Yeah, I think there's been an awful lot of reporting trying to get to the bottom of the FSB involvement in these bombings. There have been many reporters who've looked at this actually far more closely than me. And initially, my book wasn't going to be about sort of any of these terrorist attacks. Uh, I was trying to sort of follow the money uh, rather than look into these sort of age-old questions of FSB involvement. But it became a rather important issue because there was uh, one Kremlin insider who was brave enough to speak about what he heard at around that time. I think he told me that basically at some point Nikolai Patrushev, who was the head of the Federal Security Services at the time, had essentially uh, confessed to him about the FSB's involvement in the bombings. Uh, He was very annoyed because already two, I I think two or, or maybe even three apartment bombings had already occurred when some very vigilant resi- residents at an apartment in Rezan, so not too far away from Moscow, had uncovered some sacks of what looked like explosives in a basement of an apartment building. And they immediately alerted the authorities. The authorities came, tested the sacks, and indeed the initial conclusion was that they contained hexagon, which was the explosive material material uh, used to blow up the other other apartments but and they the local FSB were very fast on the trail but soon afterwards uh, Nikolai Patrushev the head of the FSB essentially intervened and said no that was just a training exercise that wasn't actually hexagon we've done further tests and it was just sugar in this in those sacks and you know thank you residents of Rizam for being vigilant we know we can all rest safely when there are such great residents as you. But it turned out when Patrushev was having a conversation with this Kremlin insider who was who was brave enough to speak, it turned out that Patrushev was actually fuming. He said that the local authorities, his rivals in the interior ministry had been close to blowing the entire operation that they'd nearly caught the FSB red-handed in sort of planting these sacks. They'd been hot on the trail uh, some calls, I believe there are other reporters who've written about this, that some calls were intercepted by the whoever had planted the sacks, uh, calling back to FSB operatives in Moscow. Another uh, senior FSB officer, uh, a, f- a former FSB officer, had later recognised a sketch of, of one of these uh, people who'd planted the sacks as resembling uh, very much uh, an FSB operative. He'd worked with once uh, soon after he revealed uh, that information, this former FSB officer found himself in jail for a very long time. So, and the, and this just a quick follow up on that is this is important because of Putin's response to the apartment bombings, right? I mean, he takes the lead. This is when he's actually running for election for president at that time, right? And he becomes the face of the response to the supposedly Chechen apartment bombings and very forcefully cracks down, launches these air raids, and that helps propel him to the presidency. 
Yes, it was the moment when he really sort of came into his own. Before then, he he wasn't really recognised. People didn't know who, who he was. He was just another grey, colourless bureaucrat. But suddenly he was there sort of bounding from helicopters, sort of using colourful language against Chechen terrorists, saying, we're going to waste them in the outhouse. And the entire Russian nation was actually essentially cheering this emergence of a strong leader after uh, all the weaknesses and, and failings of Yeltsin. Catherine, you um, you said that you set out in this book to follow the money. And I, I want to ask you a little bit about that. Uh, you write about how Putin used Russian money, presumably dirty money, uh, to kind of manipulate, corrupt and compromise many sort of elite Western figures, bankers, real estate magnates, lawyers, um, po- politicians. Uh, talk a little bit about how he did this, what the purpose was, and sort of more generally about using these tactics as a way of kind of undermining the West. Yes, I, I think um, basically Putin learned quite early in his presidency about uh, how easy it was to kind of use sort of capitalism as a tool against the West, because I think from early on it became clear that as he was taking over uh, sort of cash flows in, in the Russian economy when he was sort of jailing uh, the country's one-time richest man, Mikhail Khodorkovsky, and taking over his oil company, that most Western investors didn't particularly care about how the Kremlin was essentially subverting the rule of law and the entire kind of justice and legal system to take over cash flow as long as they were on board and getting a piece of the action. He very correctly calculated that for most of Western investments, um, investors sort of profit would be the overriding kind of motivation and, and factor. And most people didn't really care what he was doing to, to achieve his goals. And so he could kind of identify this weakness quite early on. And as sort of Russian cash began flooding into the West, I think the West was really hoping that sort of uh, even though sort of Russia was under this sort of ex-KGB officer's control, that there were sort of certain disturbing elements. Most Western leaders were hoping that nevertheless sort of Russian IPOs in London and sort of uh, Russian share offerings in London were going to mean that sort of Russian companies and, and Russia itself would event would have to follow Western models of corporate governance and that Russia was indeed, the, the more it kind of uh, looked for, moved its money into the West, the more it would eventually kind of join the, the Western kind of led global order. But it turned out uh, that's not quite the case, especially when uh, kind of places like London have this sort of so-called light touch uh, regulation where you don't have to disclose much, sort of you can still be pretty non-transparent and get away with a major listing on the London Stock Exchange. We've seen numerous examples of of companies later delisting when they face massive corporate governance problems. So I think instead of sort of Russia joining the the Western order, essentially this this flood of cash into the West meant that uh, Russia was able to begin corrupting and undermining Western institutions. And the problem is, I mean, I've seen this sort of time and again, that sort of Western lawyers in London, bankers, they didn't really particularly care where the cash was coming from. If it was stolen, corrupt cash, okay, it's not really our problem, but it's not, you know, it's not a 
is really a big issue because so what if it's stolen cash from Russia? Because that just means that Russia is weak, right? Rather than it being a security threat to the West. And I think what's been a fundamental misunderstanding is the degree to which many Russian businessmen are beholden to the Kremlin for holding on to the wealth um, that because all their businesses are based in Russia, they own their businesses only through Putin's grace. So if you have a big chunk of cash in the West, uh, I was told by one Moscow tycoon, Pyotr Arvin, that if he got a call from Putin, for instance, that he had to spend $1 billion on this or that project, he couldn't say no, because, you know, he's beholden to the Kremlin, you have to follow the orders. That's what the system is. And whether that cash is going to be used for strategic projects in Russia or outside, I mean, we didn't go into that type of detail, but it's so, clear that uh, oligarchs are instruments of the Kremlin's command. So I have to ask you, and this, of course, is something that Isakov has written a lot about, where does Donald Trump fit into this picture, according to your reporting? And, you know, we know that he has been throughout his career as a, as a businessman, the beneficiary of, of questionable sources of Russian money, and that he has also associated himself with unsavory Russian figures. So what did you find out in, in looking into Trump and, and, and these relationships? Yeah, um, I wanted to say I really enjoyed reading reading Mike's book about Russian roulette. I think my book comes to it from <laughs> from the other side. It's like the it's the Russian side of the equation. Which, which by the and way, that, the paperback of Russian roulette is out the same day as your book uh, on on, <laughs> on Tuesday. So a twin, they can be twin together for, for <laughs> Russia files. So yeah. it was great. It was great to read the the U.S. side of the shenanigans. But um, I think what, what I was trying to look into were some of the sort of the Russian money men who'd interacted with Trump in one way or other, sort of over the years. And what the reporting sort of very clearly showed that there was a network of of Moscow money men, many of whom were sort of uh, interlinked with each other, who'd been orbiting Trump almost since the end of the 80s. Or one of them uh, was was very illustrative, actually. His name was uh, Shelva Chigurinsky, and he was friends with many of the individuals that we later saw courting Trump, whether it be from the Bayrock real estate development firm that sort of worked on so many construction projects with Trump or, you know, and the other financial backers of that firm. But Chigurinsky had known Trump actually since November 1990. He was uh, introduced to him by other Atlantic City casino operators. But uh, Chigurinsky himself was a kind of very illustrative of the sort of uh, how the KGB were, was sending money into the West through individuals after at the Soviet fall. Chigurinsky started out in life as an antique smuggler. He was able to leave uh, the Soviet Union before the fall. He was allowed out of the country. Indeed, he was encouraged to leave by former senior foreign intelligence operatives. And, uh, you know, he was very quickly, uh, he very quickly befriended Trump, you know, and he uh, sort of was in this orbit of, of money men around him for, for many years to come. So I think it, you know, I think it, it the, the reporting basically uh, showed, I think, the, the enduring influence of some of these networks that were first established as, as the Soviet Union fell. Um, and I think, you know, I think it's interesting to look at, uh, for instance, 
Felix Sater's ties to Russian intelligence. Obviously, a lot of the reporting has focused on sort of the efforts to lure Trump to Moscow with promises of these sort of big blingy Trump towers where he'd get to earn sort of huge commissions and, and so on by just putting his name on the tower. And none of the towers uh, were ever built in Moscow, but they were certainly built in the US and Trump has earned yet to be disclosed amounts of money from some of the projects that Felix Sater was working with him on there. Catherine, I was going to say, uh, John Bolton in his uh, new book says uh, Putin has played Trump like a fiddle. Does that sound right to you? Hmm. I think uh, Trump is easily, has been always easily impressed by sort of uh, Moscow, uh, its architecture, its hospitality, its women. I think for Russia, Trump was a very uh, kind of, you know, he's a very convenient vehicle for funneling cash into the West initially. At what point he became a political opportunity, it's anyone's guess, but uh, Trump is certainly wowed by Putin. I'm not sure he was kind of ever a long-term a Manchurian candidate, as some people like to say, but he certainly fits very nicely into kind of the Russian worldview. He's Trump, by his own nature, is disruptive. He questions the, the world order. He likes to tear up the rule book. And of course, this fits uh, how Russia would, would like to, to see the world, it, sort of these destruction, the destruction of the alliances following the, the Cold War. Final question, Catherine. Putin's standing today. Is he going to serve another term as president? What's his popularity? What is his uh, his standing with the Russian public right now? After all these years, he's been in office since 2000. So we're coming up on two decades of Putin's rule here. Yeah, I'm beginning to think that he's running out of tricks. Um, It seems pretty desperate at the moment that he's kind of forging ahead with holding a new vote on changing the constitution that would allow him to remain in power for another 12 years. Initially, uh, this vote was to be held in April. It was postponed because of the pandemic. And initially, uh, the talk was of, of it being held in September. But his popularity ratings have been falling quite rapidly over his sort of kind of inadequate handling of of the of the pandemic very many most of the population have worried about sort of you know you know he wasn't kind of incredibly present. He didn't seem to manage the crisis very well. He left it to regional leaders to handle. He sort of disappeared off the rating. His his current rating is around 59%, and at least that's according to official figures. More independent pollsters uh, put it at lowest still, and it's the lowest uh, in his entire 20-year reign. I mean, Putin has had this great stretch of luck. He had rising oil prices for the first two terms of his presidency, then when he returned to power in 2012, he annexed Crimea and there was a huge surge of patriotism that kind of boosted his popularity. And, and really, he, he's running out of cards now. And indeed, so he has a, a rainy day fund of, of kind of oil windfall gains that he can use to bail out the economy. But that's really not going to last very long when oil prices aren't as high as he's used to seeing them and uh, when a lot of companies need bailing out from the lockdown. 
I got to say how ironic it would be if both Putin and Trump go down together over the coronavirus uh, pandemic. Um, some people will find that a delicious irony, I suppose. But anyway, Catherine, thanks for joining us. It's a great read. Putin's people out this week and anybody interested in Russia and Putin and the state of affairs in U.S.-Russian relations um, should definitely uh, put this on their list. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. Thanks so much for having me on. Thanks to former Justice Department Director of Public Affairs, Matthew Miller, and special correspondent for Reuters and author, Catherine Belton, for joining us on Skullduggery. Don't forget to subscribe to Skullduggery on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And tell us what you think. Leave a review. Be sure to follow us on social media at Skullduggery Pod. We'll talk to you soon.